Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. The fabric of the scene and really changed after that. And it got a lot, sort of a lot crazier, a lot more kind of, uh, you know, rock and roll. And I encourage people, you know, if they wake up and they land in that cubicle every day and they feel like, oh my God, this sucks. What am I doing here? Get out. It'll work itself out. You know, get out. What's up, guys? You are listening to The Human Experience. Our episode today is with Mr. Zach Leary. Zach is into some really interesting topics concerning futurism, consciousness, spirituality, mysticism, psychedelics. We get into all those things. We talk about his relationship with his dad. This is a great episode and it flew by. And whenever that happens, it's usually a good episode. So hopefully you guys enjoy this one. Thank you so much for listening. human experiences in session my guest for today is mr zach leary zach my good sir welcome to hxp thank you so much for having me pleasure to be here i'm familiar with your background but many of our listeners might not be if you could just give us a short biography of you know who you are what you do please you know sometimes when that question's asked you know and being sort of the pathologically anti-authoritarian spiritualist that i am I'm just a soul trying to find some grace. You know, I don't really know what it is I do. You know, I'm just trying to find, get through (laughs) another moment, trying to find grace and wisdom as I can. You know, I spent about 15 years working um, in pretty high levels within uh, the marketing and advertising industry. I'm helping brands and uh, various bands as well and entities kind of develop their their digital presence and their technology strategy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and I, and I did, I had a, not a great time doing that, but an okay time doing that. And I reached uh, somewhat senior levels. Then I, I kind of got to this point to where I just was, uh, you know, I hit my head on the wall and uh, kind of came up with just your perfect existential spiritual crisis and realized, uh, what, what am I doing? You know, how can I spend my, uh, all of my waking hours going to offices and being kind of lost in office culture and working on so-called passions and, and goals that are really other people's, you know? And that's not to say, you know, that people who do that are lost. I mean, they are many great people do great things like that. Just was not for me, Yeah, it turned out, yeah. So I kind of did an about face, but then I kind of just turned all of my interest and focus into uh, really doing uh, the things that I that I'm most passionate about, and that's focusing on a very human application of, of spiritual principles, as well as talking about the sort of the evolution of mankind as defined through technology and where technology is driving us both on a psycho spiritual level and as well as a sociological level. 
because it is really, I think, within the last hundred years, you know, the advent of technology. I mean, from the Industrial Revolution on, I just don't mean like Facebook and phones, but technology is really, it's really shaping our culture into either the destruction or the savior. So I'm just kind of interested in all of those things. And so, yeah, I, I podcast and I write and talk and teach and things like that. Yeah, that is very interesting. And I, I liked what you said about the nine to five grind. And I think a lot of us get caught up in that sort of cubicle matrix world. And yep. it's hard to break out when you're in the midst of that world. So I mean, it, it is. And, and I want to say too, so sorry to interrupt, but I do want to say too, that it's, it's really important. Like, you know, sometimes if I go on a preamble like this, it does sound like high and mighty. And I don't mean it to be that way. People who do have to go to a cubicle today because they have to pay their rent and feed their family. That's great. You know, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. You know, I just think it's about listening to your own heart and being true you know, to, to thine self, you know, what's working for you. Uh, many people are happy being creative directors at advertising agencies and do great work. If that's your dharma, that's yours. It just wasn't mine. Right. And I encourage people, you know, if they wake up and they land in that cubicle every day and they feel like, oh, my God, this sucks. What am I doing here? Get out. It'll work itself out. You know, get out. Yeah, that's the biggest step I think you can take uh, for your own personal evolution. So when you mentioned spirituality and there's a mixture of technology, are you a transhumanist? Do you believe in this futuristic sort of dumping consciousness into, uh, I don't know, a body, something like that, anything like that? Yeah, I, I, I do consider myself to be a transhumanist uh, in the sense that I'll caveat that by saying I don't know if consciousness can be distilled to a version that can be written into some firmware. <laughs> you know, I don't know if that's ever going to be possible because I believe that consciousness in and of itself is a disembodied phenomenon that exists outside of ourselves. And the human being's interaction with consciousness is just our perception. Consciousness will continue to exist without us. So I don't know if that's possible, but yes, I do believe in the mutation of mankind into fusing with technology. Do you think that this is something that we'll see within our lifetime? Well, we're starting to see it. I mean, we are, we're starting to see it on smaller levels. You know, there are nanotech improvements that are starting to happen. It's very, very possible that within our lifetimes, we'll be able to see through nanotechnology fused with corrective surgery, like the repairing of quadriplegics, you know, things like that. You know, this is certainly an ethical thing and for better or for worse, but, you know, we can now map the human genome and look at certain traits to see where perhaps one might want to improve and how to, you know, whether it's cognitively improve or health wise, mm -hmm. you know, so we're starting to see those things. You know, I know this, it, it freaks a lot of people out, especially people who are, you know, into sort of the green organic back to the earth movement, but I don't think it should freak us out. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're starting to see it. And I think uh, within the next 50 years, we're really going to see some things that 20 years ago would have been science fiction. Yeah. I mean, it's really amazing the progress that we're making in it. I think you touch on this in your work, but I'm not sure if humanity is ready for the cultural <laughs> advancements that technology is making. It's happening so fast that yeah. it's almost overwhelming how quickly technology is advancing in parallel to our own understanding of it. I mean, do you agree? 
I absolutely agree. I, I mean, there's no question. How, how could I not? I just think at any time if somebody panics and kind of gets freaked out at that relationship, the, the most important thing to do is to step back and realize that the human condition as we know it now, and you look around at our species, like I think it's presumptuous to say that this is the final stop in the human evolutionary matrix. I don't believe that. I think this is this is human being 1.0. Hmm. You know, I mean, I, I just don't believe that this is the end of the human evolutionary ladder. I think there could be a human being 2.0. And what does that human being 2.0 look like? You know, I, I really have no idea. But what if it is a synthesis of silicon-infused enhancements? Hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. what if that is God's will? So there is an aspect of you believing God as well as being a futurist and believing in yeah. technology. Let's rewind a little bit. You know, you adapted, was it the Krishna consciousness movement that you bounced into or how did that come about with the spiritual practice that you use? Yeah, I mean, the Krishna conscious movement played a part in it for sure. I mean, it was a combination of that and my association with Ram Dass, uh, you know, Ram Dass being very close with, with my father and growing up with him and him being around a lot. You know, so when I was a teenager, I got exposed to his work and to the Krishna consciousness movement for sure. And then, you know, it took me a, a while to sort of develop any sort of spiritual practice because I, you know, I honestly just wasn't that disciplined when I was young. Uh, so I just was bouncing around, you know what I mean? But it was still in my soul and imprinted sort of somewhere in there. And then later on, I uh, kind of got closer to Ram Dass again and met him in a different way. I'm not sure how that happened, how those sort of mystical experiences transpire, but they did. And I just saw him in a different light. And uh, I'm part of that community and that satsang now. But the Krishna consciousness movement definitely as well plays a part. I'm not, you know, an initiated Hare Krishna. I, I would not say that, but I have great reverence for what Krishna consciousness is. And the overall sort of, as Ramdas used to love to say when he met Neem Karoli Baba in 1967, he gave me a new map of consciousness. And so for the way uh, Vedanta in the Hindu blueprint looks at consciousness and energy structures and how that kind of manifests into spirituality, it works for me. Yeah, let's, let's dive into that. Yeah. So in a daily practice, is it kirtan? Is that what it's called? Yeah, I mean, my daily practice consists of uh, you know, a little bit of meditation, just kind of traditional Vipassana meditation, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes. And then kirtan. Yeah, I sing a, a specific chant every day. And then if time permits, I sing more. <laughs> and then if time permits even more, I'll, I'll do some uh, japa, which is repetition of mantras on, on, on a mala, you know, on beads. Right, right. Yeah, but at the bare minimum, I'll do meditation and, and sing some prayers. Yeah, I was exposed to uh, the Krishna Consciousness Movement as well. I was working at this startup incubator, and they would serve lunch every day nearby. So I would just go there. I would donate like $5 and eat this really healthy Indian food, which was delicious. And then and I slowly started to pick up the teachings of it. I, I can't say that I stuck with it, but there was something about it that resonated for me as true. Um, you know how you just kind of feel something as okay, this is resonating, this fits something, this works. Maybe your conscious mind doesn't really completely comprehend what that connection is. You understand? Yeah, and you summed it up perfectly. The conscious mind does not understand 
what the subconscious mind, <laughs> its connection is. Tell me about these beads. Is it repetition of certain specific sounds that resonates your body or how does that work? Well, it is said that the utterance of the names of God are the same as God itself. So if you are chanting the various names of God, you know, whatever resonate with you the most, and this means mantra, if you are uttering those names, that means you are calling in the divine itself in physical form. You are calling it into your space. They are one of the same. So the repetition of these names, the, the ISKCON, the Hare Krishna movement, is a, it's a really good example to look at this because they're very dedicated to their japa. I mean, that's their core practice, you know, is the repetition of the Hare Krishna mantra on these beads. And by, you know, reciting it over and over and over again, there's a great quote by a wonderful teacher named Radhanath Swami that says, mantra or kirtan cleanses the dust off the mirror of one's own heart. So the, the divine lives within your heart always. It's always within. And every tradition will, will tell you that, you know, that it's, it's, it's within. But through the process of being alive, you know, suffering, greed, desires, sense pleasures, ego, whatever it is, your heart gets dusty, you know, and it just clouds up your divinity. And we just become, you know, the human condition can become very exacerbated on the egoic side. So the chanting of these names, it just slowly, slowly just wipes off some of the dust and slowly gets you back to who you truly are. And that is a, a manifestation of divinity. You know, a, a lot of people do, who are kind of getting into spirituality and into practices, they can sort of get hung up on the external thing. Well, so, well if God is within, then why, why do you have these, you know, these statues, these mortis of, of gods all over the place? Why are you looking at pictures of gurus? That's external, isn't it? Hmm. And it is. But the reason for them, it's because they are reminders. Unless you are truly a realized being, uh, I, I'm not a truly realized being. You know, I don't think that's going to happen to me this time. <laughs> I, it's not looking that way. But unless you're a truly realized being, you know, the human condition keeps coming back. It just keeps coming back and keeps coming back. So it just, you know, we need these reminders to go deeper. You know? Yeah, and you know, um, the the grand illusion, the Maya, which is it's so yeah. immersive and you know we all get trapped in that we all get trapped in this sort of cycle of you know, suffering and I, I think that internal pain that internal struggle tends to cause us to look for external solutions as in drugs alcohol to sort of numb that pain to sort of just numb mm. ourselves away and one of the reasons that i personally connected with the krishna consciousness movement was just because, you know, they talked about this, they, they mentioned, and a lot of the things that um, some of the, the people that were living in the Krishna consciousness uh, temple were telling me, it was, it was something like, I was going out drinking, partying with my friends, and the next day, I, you know, I felt like shit, and I was hungover, and it, it just, it was so temporary, it was so plastic, and it was really getting to me. When I encountered these people who were sort of offering solution to okay look inside and use this japa use these beads to kind of resonate this sound you know i was interested it was like a magnet i was just pulled towards it you're so right and they have a very concise and clean perspective distilling what is 
maya and what is not and why sense pleasures you know in the middle of all of this too i obviously you know i still have reverence for the psychedelic movement and things like that and you know sense pleasures in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad things but it is so easy to get carried away with them and to lose yourself in them as sources of endless pleasure because at the end of the day it will never be enough in some ways the the quality of addiction is pervasive throughout the entire human existence you know we are just it's never enough it's never enough it's never enough whether that's drugs sex alcohol money shopping food bombs power even how we our country measures its health it measures it on what you know what's called the gdp which is the assumption of consumption of greed of expansion it's not a metric of restraint (laughs) it's a metric of growth gotta have more gotta have more (laughs) gotta have more that's how we're healthy gdp's gotta go up that's an insane way to think yeah and so you know the krishna consciousness movement just it shatters all of that you know and just goes into the contentness and the purity of this moment and everything that you have everything that you need is it's it's all right here yeah you know i feel like it's like when the veil is over your eyes and you're just you know you turn your tv on and you're just kind of zombied out it's really difficult to see past that illusion because of how pervasive it is mm. Zach, I'd really like to talk to you about your relationship with your dad. Mm. Those are big shoes to fill. That's a long shadow to kind of stand under. How old were you when he died? I was 22. You know, you were around him a lot. I was, yeah. Yeah. What was the lifestyle like back then when, when you were interacting with him and, and you saw him kind of do these speeches and give these talks? I mean, how did you feel? Uh, well, it certainly changed a lot over the course of time, I have to say. Um, uh, a, a large part of that due to him divorcing my mother and my mother, uh, you know, taking off and moving to South America. And then I stayed in Los Angeles with him and, you know, the fabric of the scene and really changed after that. And it got a lot, sort of a lot crazier, a lot more kind of, uh, you know, rock and roll, I guess, to, to put it subtly but growing up it took me a long time to understand what it is he did when you're a kid you you can't get your head around that stuff i i didn't know you know i knew he was famous and i knew he wrote and i knew he would go on these college lecture tours but i didn't understand like the depth of them and i didn't understand what you know the context of them was or the content uh, he now and then he'd get kind of hired for like a B movie part, which was kind of funny. And he took me to the set one day and he was just acting as in this role. And I was standing on set. I was a kid. I was probably 10 or 11 years old. And I was standing there just as on, on the movie set, you know, next to lighting guys and grips and all of those things. And, and some grip who's standing next to me goes, I can't believe they're letting that awful, awful man be in this movie. Wow. And he didn't know my connection, obviously, or I don't think he would have said it. I was like, oh, my God, why would anybody say that about my dad? Like, what did he do? Yeah. You know? And I asked him on the ride home, and I remember that, but still that answer was hard for me to, to get hold of. But, you know, and then he, he sort of mentioned that, well, you know, the 1960s and uh, psychedelics and LSD were very polarizing. You know, it was an amazing time of discovery and expansion. 
individuality and, you know, a loosening of the cultural restrictions that have previously governed this country. But it was also polarizing. There were a lot of people feeling different things, and he pissed a lot of people off. So I was just starting to learn about him then. But as I sort of got older, as I became a teenager and I was a deadhead, you know, it was a huge part of my youth. I really got into his work and he you know, not only was a father, but a teacher. I mean, some of his books had a profound influence on me growing up. You know, I can, I can feel the, you know, there's some pain in your voice there when we talk about him. Does it bother you when people bring him up to you at all? No, it doesn't bother me at all. I'm always happy to, to talk about it. I love him and I miss him. I have great reverence for him. I just, you know, there's just sort of, um, I guess, a natural limit on how much I can answer, you know, yeah, of course, uh, yeah. because I am my own person and I've spent a lot of years and had to go through a lot of pain, sadly, to discover who I truly am. And a lot of that was sort of shedding, you know, I can't, I can't be him, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was, he was, I, I can't be that. I can't try to even follow to do that. So I've just had to create who I am and be happy with that. But yeah, I have great reverence, and, but there's just only so much I can answer. It's not like I have any sort of secret code or any sort of <laughs> secret perception into the workings of Timothy Leary's mind, you know, I just have my, my experience. That's a completely fair point. And, you know, I would, I would never put you in that position, like give me all the <laughs> secrets. I'm only an observer and I'm not in that position at all, but I feel like that would be a very difficult position to carry, to follow through. And, you know, so one of the reasons that we brought you onto the show is that you're requested by many of our listeners to have you on. But one thing that you did carry on of your father's work was just your interest in psychedelics. And is there a psychedelic that you kind of lean towards? Ayahuasca, LSD, any of those? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> a good question. I think I would say, like, long term, in the sense of it really altered who I am more than any other psychedelic, it's been LSD. It's, it's really changed the fabric of my being and, you know, gave me the, the tools to pierce the veil in the way that was most profound for me, for sure. But today, it's pretty rare that I'd want to do an acid trip, mainly because it's so long. Uh, and my my fragile little eggshell mind just can't take it as much as well anymore. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I find DMT to be a very, very useful tool because it's short. And I've surveyed the landscape of psychedelics, you know, so much, so many times now, you know what I mean, that I don't need to constantly go back into long, heroic journeys over and over again. I mean, now and then, sure, it's great, it's valuable, but I love the kind of the quick in and out. Um, profundity that DMT gives. And it's important to regard these compounds as just tools. These are not party compounds. These are not things that you use to, you know, get effed up with your friends and, and have a good time. That's just, yeah. that's not the way that I see them at all. And, you know, I like to put that disclaimer on it, at least that. I know that you struggled and battled with addiction yourself. What was something for you that was the breaking point where you said to yourself, okay, I have to change this. I have to shift this. Uh, jail. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, yeah. I mean, I was, uh, I was a low bottom addict. You know, I, I, I used really hard and uh, ended up in legal problems and then in rehab. 
you know, and uh, it was just that simple. I mean, sure, jail is just a, you know, a, a little manifestation of how bad things can get, but it really, it, it paints you a picture of, uh, guy, you know, if you don't fix this, this is going to get really, uh, ugly. This is going to get, you know, you're going to end your life. Wow. Yeah. This is going to take you all the way down, you know, and is this your Dharma? Is this how you want to live? Is this what you think you were brought on this planet to do? And all of those things came flashing through my mind and in jail cells and in rehab and, and, uh, and those voices can be very, very quiet at first, but they can plant a seed within you that is so deep and so full of reverence that they can fill you up and just make you change your ways. You know, it's just not worth it. Addiction is such a dark place. We've had a lot of different doctors and specialists on. Um, I think you've talked to Dr. Gabor Mate. Yeah. Gabor has like this very interesting perspective on addiction, on how you know, it's rooted in childhood trauma, rooted in this suffering that we encounter as children. And we are trying to just numb this suffering away. We're just trying to make the pain sort of stop. Addiction should be regarded as this sort of health disorder, not a criminal disorder. Do you agree? I absolutely agree 100%. I think all the work that he's doing and so many others are doing is wonderful. But I'll also caveat that too, because there is something that Gabor has said in some of those, those talks that he gives that I do counter against in that, yes, all of those things are true, childhood trauma and lack of connection and us just trying to you know run away and heal the pain and all of that is true. But there is also a physiological chemical element to it as well and that it doesn't matter how spiritual i am or how many hanuman chalices i chant if i put opiates in my body the opiates react differently to me and now the data is now showing that because of the oxycontin epidemic that swept america we now have a lot more data about opiate addiction than we ever have before but that anywhere like as high some numbers are saying as high as 20 percent of the american population is predisposed to opiate addiction and that's a really high number i mean jesus that's one in five people that means that you know you put that chemical inside of you and when you stop taking it you know after the surgery is over your recovery is over your body screams more 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 and sometimes that has to do with childhood trauma Sometimes it has nothing to do with childhood trauma. So I, I just think that sometimes a lot of those topics that are being floated around in the alternative addiction healing communities, I love them and I think they're powerful, but I think sometimes they can be too generalizing. Some people just have the gene. Not everyone needs to let the gene take them all the way to jail. <laughs> I'm not saying that. And then when you get that far deep, you know, yes, that probably has a lot to do I could speak for myself, you know, that went far beyond just me being strung out and needing more that went into some serious pain and self-loathing to let it go that far. Healthy, uh, evolved people who are in touch, you know, with their, with their hearts and their souls can probably seek uh, help much quicker. How do you think in your own personal perspective and experience, we can you know, create a more balanced understanding of the process of addiction and kind of coming out through the other side. It's a, I mean, like you said it before, I mean, it's just, I think all, our entire culture needs to shift its perspective on how it views addiction. Let's just start there. You know, it's not 
a criminal justice thing. You know, this isn't something that should be persecuted. And this should be looked at through the lens of compassion and through the lens of, you know, sickness, but also through the lens of suffering. You know, it's no wonder that the first noble truth in the Buddhist path has to do with suffering because, you know, we, we are so fraught with suffering. You know, it just it comes seems to come so easily for, for human beings, you know, and addiction is really just a, a condition of that. It's just kind of a subset of that, of a way to sort of exacerbate suffering and and find a temporary relief for it. It's kind of hard to say, but at first, drugs, you know, I mean, I'm talking hard drugs and addiction. They do ease the suffering. It's true. It, it works temporarily. But, you know, obviously that doesn't last and that's not sustainable. So I think it's just about kind of changing our entire dynamic language, perception and culture around it. What's up, guys? You have been listening to Zach Leary on The Human Experience. To hear the rest of this episode, get to thehumanxp.com slash members. That will give you access to the members content area where we have a whole range of content that you can listen to. You help support the show, help us keep this going. Thank you so much for listening. 